You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer for fandom, geekiness, and everything. We have another awesome episode lined up for you where I get to interview Leonard Herman, the game scholar himself. But before that, just a little update on things. I am back from my vacation, and so the show should get back into a regular schedule unless something else goes crazy in my life again, which is possible. But I'll keep everyone informed through the Facebook page. Um, a few things I just wanted to share from my trip. One of the things that I did was I went to upstate New York for something called the Star Trek tour. There's this town in upstate New York called Ticonderoga. It's, I don't know, a few hours away from New York City. I didn't really go from New York City. I was visiting my mother in Massachusetts, and then we went to New York from there. So not quite sure the distance from New York City, but basically a guy there, um somehow got a license from CBS to have an official Star Trek museum, basically. Um, It's got a lot of memorabilia from the show, but the real draw is that he got a hold of the original set blueprints for the original Enterprise, and they've built all of those sets. So you walk through and you're in sickbay, you're in engineering, you're in Kirk's quarters, you're on the bridge, you're in the transporter room. So it's a really cool place to go visit. Um, I really recommend uh, it for anyone who's a Star Trek fan because, I mean, the attention to detail is really, really good. They even have uh, a few props that were actually on the show that they picked up from auctions. And in fact, it's done so well that CBS has extended their license to cover all of the Trek TV shows. Now, I'm not sure if that covers Discovery. I didn't think to ask while I was there because I had a really bad head cold, but since I'd already made the plans to go in do it i was like i don't care if i'm sick i'm just gonna go but afterwards i wondered about that that if it that they really meant that they just had rights to all the shows before discovery since discovery is current but either way they're buying another property that's adjacent to them to expand into and they talked about building sets for the enterprise d from next generation so it's only going to get more impressive um from here so definitely check that out for uh, any star trek fans out there Other than that, I mean, uh, went to Six Flags, did a few other fun things. Uh, The other thing is that a friend of mine um, turned me on to something called geocaching, which I'm not sure if anyone listening to this has heard of before, but it's basically like a worldwide treasure hunt um, where people actually drop like, uh, it can be anything. Some of them are, are really basic and some of them are really elaborate, but just did a set of coordinates and upload it to a website and 
there are clues and sometimes there's mysteries and sometimes you have to go from point to point to point to find something but it's something that i'm going to try i did it with my friend um while i was in massachusetts so we'll see uh if i do anything further with that now that i'm back but it is something that i at least want to try so if anyone has any experience with geocaching you know in the audience drop me a line at everything at 42cast.com or on the facebook page uh let me know what you think of it because it's something that i'd like to try I also watched Ant-Man and the Wasp, and of course we will have a episode on that on the 42 cast, because we always cover the MCU movies. But yeah, other than that, relaxing time with family and such, so my kids all got sick, and I got sick, and so, you know, all that happened. But it was a fairly long vacation, we were out there for a week and a half, so it wasn't too bad. So I'm sure that you're all waiting to hear the interview, but before we do that, let's pause for a moment for a word from our network. Did you know the ESO Network has a brand new Patreon? That's right. We're asking for your help, and you could do it for as little as a dollar a month. Don't fret. All your favorite shows will still be available for free, as always. But you can get exclusive podcasts and more not heard anywhere else but on our Patreon. To sign for the ESO Network, Patreon's easy. All you have to do is go to ESOPodcast.com and click on the link. With your support of the ESO Network, it's you who will reap the rewards. And today, as I talked about at the top of the show, uh, I'm going to interview the father of video game history, Leonard Herman. He is a publisher and writer, uh, as well as uh, being a historian. So, uh, Leonard, thank you for coming on the uh, 42 cast today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, of course, the uh, the most recent thing that you've written is uh, Phoenix 4, which mm-hmm. is a chronicle of uh, video game history starting from the beginning to uh, just to 2016, I believe. Uh, 2016 in the deluxe version, 2015 in the black and white version. But uh, I realized that that didn't just come out of nowhere. So I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your life, your career, you know, getting to writing Phoenix and uh, all the various editions and whatnot. So to uh, start off, could you just give a little bit of background, like uh, where you grew up? I grew up in Irvington, New Jersey, (laughs) which is uh, probably one of the highest crime rates in New Jersey uh, today. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I hope it was a little bit better when you were growing up. It was better uh, when I lived there. I got out nearly 40 years ago, I guess, showing my age. Mm. And when did you first encounter video games? 1972. My local bowling alley had Pong. But also a friend of mine who I became friends with in 1973, and we're still close friends today, he he got an Odyssey when it came out. So I played that at his house a couple of times. He still has that Odyssey today. Wow. And uh, I even got it autographed by Ralph Baer. That is really cool. I have an Odyssey myself, but I got mine many, many years later. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... 
you know, when you played Pong, was it something where you realized as you were playing it that this was something that was going to uh, to, to be huge? Probably not. I mean, I was a big fan of pinball. Actually, that's all there was then. And Pong was just something different. I mean, I probably didn't play it all the time. I probably played it once or twice and just then lost interest in it, probably. I actually don't remember. It's just so long ago. I mean, I remember seeing it for the first time. I remember playing it a few times, but I don't remember once the initial uh, fascination, once that wore off, I don't remember how I was with it. Mm. And with the Odyssey, uh, was there were there any of the games in particular that uh, you really liked on the Odyssey? The only thing I remember playing with him was just uh, video tennis. And I remember he won all the time, and he told me that my controller was broken. But in hindsight, I think he was probably using the English feature, which I didn't know about. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Because <laughs> that would make it very difficult to play if he was using it and you didn't know about it. <laughs> So, um, what happened after that? Did you, did you see more arcade games or how did you, uh, what was your next exposure to video games? I don't remember to tell you the truth. I remember, uh, 1979, I decided to get a, a system. I don't remember the years in between. Uh, a friend of mine worked for Crazy Eddie, which was an electronic store in the New York area. He worked in the uh, service department and he said I could use his discount to get a uh, system. So I went in and I had to choose between the Atari VCS and the Magnavox Odyssey 2. And I liked the keyboard on the Odyssey. And I thought that uh, it had uh, potential. But what drew me to buy the, to get the uh, the Atari was because uh, a breakout was available for it. Uh, that's right. In college, I used to play breakout all the time. That was my favorite arcade game. So uh, this 1979 was a yeah, I guess I was still going to college then. But anyway, Breakout was available, so I bought the VCS uh, with Breakout and Casino, and of course, Combat came with it. And then that started my buying uh, VCS games, and that never stopped. What's your favorite game for the VCS? <sighs> that's, that's a tough one. I mean, there's probably so many games I forgot about. I mean, I always say my, my standard answer is always Adventure. But, you know, think about it. I, I mean, I like Superman, which came out before Adventure. But I like quest games, and I like uh, logic games. So anything that falls under those categories are probably my favorites. <laughs> okay, sure. And uh, did you, after you or, or after you first had the VCS, you were collecting VCS games, did your love for video games continue on from that point, or did you have another break like you did when you played Pong, the Odyssey, and then you kind oh, of... No, no, no. Well, I've always been a collector. Like, when I was a kid, I collected uh, baseball cards and comic books and Matchbox cards. So uh, collecting VCS cartridges was my next collection. So as new ones start coming out, I start getting them. I subscribe to Video Magazine for Arcade Alley to see what's coming out next. I get the games as they came out on the day of the release. And uh, pretty soon that became unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how many games did you end up getting? How many do I have today? Yeah. Or? Well, I mean, at the time, I guess. All the VCS games that were available, I got. Oh, that okay. I knew about. Like the, the very rare ones I didn't know about. You know, the ones that they're finding out today and stuff. But uh, I decided to write a book. In 1982, I decided to write a book called ABC the VCS, which was a directory of uh, two Atari video games. Because there was so much crap on the market, I figured here I'll summarize every single game that's out there. So uh, 
when I started the book, I realized that I had to know about the games before they came out if the game if the book was going to be published in a timely fashion. So I went to uh, CES. I got a press pass, got all the press kits, and then got my name on some mailing lists from companies. So I was getting games from Comavid, getting games from Activision. Uh, so a few a few rare games I did get for free, like the com- all the Comavid stuff, basically. I'm trying to think, uh, Telesis, I was on their list. Telesis, they had a rare game at CES called The Impossible Game. And I'm like one of the few people who collects uh, video games today who've seen that game. And at the time, they told me it was going to be sold only in the, the Near East, in Asia. Then when they put me on their mailing list, I asked, can they send me that one? They said no. Mm. So that game fell, be- fell between the cracks. No one has seen it since. It never materialized. So uh, that's one that uh, got away from me. I was on Answer Software's list. Uh, they, they sent me the game Malagai. But they also had the, uh, and I think it's called the PDP, which was... Uh, a uh, code uh, you could go in to change the code, and I found found out years later that they sold them. If you if you wrote to them, you could buy one directly from them. And I'm really upset because here I was on their press list, they never even told me about this, and that thing today is so rare. So that's when you started going into video game writing. So what happened when the video game crash hit? Well, when the games, when the industry crashed, my book died with it because no one's going to buy a book about Atari games when they weren't coming out anymore. But I still wanted to write a book about video games. And I'm trying to think, what can I write about? And I realized there was no history. I mean, you have some books that have maybe a chapter on history, but there was no book really dedicated to the history of video games. Nothing complete. So I... This is pre-internet days. I had information. I, I subscri- subscribed to all the magazines. I had my press kit. So I just did research from all that and put together Phoenix. Okay. And when did the first edition of Phoenix come out? First edition came out in 1994. And that covered uh, video game history up to 1993. So was that a continual process from the mid-80s through 1994 of putting that book together? No, I, well, I started around 1987. And my goal was to get it out by 1992 for the 20th anniversary of Pong, except I couldn't get a publisher. Of course, uh, I still have a rejection slip from uh, Prima Books saying they didn't think that uh, there was a market for the history of video games. <laughs> so I, that's when I decided to self-publish it, and I created Relenta Press to do so. Was that a difficult process? Getting, or was that a skill set that you knew people to, to help you with that? Or no, no, it's something I learned. I mean, also if you look at the first edition, the typeset changes on me because I was using a DOS computer. We didn't have WYSIWYG, and uh, it was just a learn. I bought books on how to self-publish, and then just went ahead and did, and did it. Self-publishing isn't the hard part; it's distribution that's the hard part. Part. But uh, one thing that helped me, I sent copies out to the fanzines that were out. And uh, Chris Johnson, I can't remember the name. He he put a fanzine. He had a fanzine. I can't remember the name of it. But after I sent him a copy, he got a job with uh, EGM2, which was a spinoff of Electronic Gaming Monthly. And he did a review of the book in the second issue. And that that really helped, you know, make people know about the book. Oh, great. And so all this time, you know, after the video game, uh, you know, industry crashed and everything else, were you now moving on to collect games from other systems? You know, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Remember when I started doing that. It might have been when I started doing the second, the, the first edition of Phoenix has no pictures. 
the second when I started working on the second edition, which came out in 1996, and that one has pictures in it. I think I started getting systems to include, you know, to take the pictures. But then that really went full force for the fourth edition because I, I wanted everything in uh, high quality photos. I had to take everything over again. And I really didn't want to take anything off the uh, Internet. So there's about a thousand, over a thousand photos in the new book. And I'd say about 98 percent of them are taken by me. Yeah, I mean, then those are beautiful, beautiful pictures. In fact, it was funny because I had just read a uh, a post on the Atari Age forum about how there was just nothing available for the Odyssey 5000, which is one of those systems that was advertised but never uh, was released. And you know, the guy found like one really grainy picture from a video game magazine. And then through talking to you, when I saw the book, I was like, wait, how'd you get a picture of this? This is way better than the picture I've seen. And- well, that was from a brochure that uh, David Winter of France sent me. David's a big Odyssey collector. Actually, he runs the Pond Story website. And he had sent me that brochure, so I used it from there. So there was a really long gap between the third edition of Phoenix and the fourth edition of Phoenix. So was that because you thought that Phoenix was done, or or what was going on during that period? (laughs) My problem is I didn't keep writing Phoenix as the years went past. Ah. So, I mean, the third edition came out in 2001. I figure I'll put the next one out around 2005. And if you have Ralph Baer's book or uh, Bill Kunkel's book, which both came out in 2005, on the last page you'll see Coming Soon, Phoenix 4. Well, (laughs) that didn't happen. Another problem I had was, okay, first I had to play catch-up and write these new chapters. Uh, And then when the iPhone came out, uh, I guess I was around 2007, I didn't know how to treat it. So that that kept me on hold for a long time. Is it a console or not? But then I finally decided, because I don't cover computer games in in book. And uh, so I figured I'd just treat it as a computer. So I mentioned some places, and and the majority, I don't mention the iPhone at all. But that finally, when I realized how I'm going to do it, then I had to go backtrack, write all the chapters. But then I decided, well, since I'm going backwards, I might as well update the whole book. (laughs) Plus... I mean, the, the new book has, has a complete uh, Japanese history, which the previous editions didn't have. So I had to research all that from scratch. So it wound up taking about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, because I've, I've read uh, you know, a little criticism about the fact that computer games aren't included in the video game history. So I, I wanted to ask you, you cover arcades, you cover consoles, but why, uh, why not computer games? Because computer games, if I first if I covered computer games, the book would be twice the size as it is now, if not bigger. Plus, I've I had an Atari uh, eight hundred. Actually, I bought my Atari eight hundred to write uh, my first book on. But I was never into computer into computer games, so I really don't have any knowledge of it. And also, I mean, people when I say this, people look at me like I'm nuts. But to me, a computer does many things. And games are just one thing a computer can do. A game is software, just like, and I always say, like a word processor, where a console, I mean, now it's changing, of course. Now uh, consoles do much more. But when you put in a PS4 uh, disc into a PS4, it's going to play. Where you're not guaranteed that the game you play for your computer is going to play. And your game, your computer has to be optimized and everything. So I, I'll leave that for someone else to do. And of course, nobody has done it yet. Right. <laughs>
Yeah, the the comprehensive book covering all of video game history, including computers and including Europe and Asia and everything else. Uh, it would have to be a giant giant uh, series of books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my friend Patrick Wong hit it, and I and I mentioned his quote in the in the full in the introduction about something that the book only covers systems where the games are made specifically for a system. And arcades fit that, uh, handhelds fit that, and, of course, consoles fit that. Right. So do you continue to play games now? No. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> it's no secret. I, I can't play games. Mm. I, I play Candy Crush and Gummy Drop. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, and I, I don't have time, though. That's the problem. And mm. another thing is, the controllers are just too sophisticated for me these days. Right. I had trouble when a wrestling game came out for the 2600. And to do certain moves, you had to push the stick, say, forward two times, then to the left three times or something. Mm -hmm. Even that was too complicated for me. <laughs> so for me to try now, forget it. Yeah, it's funny because I'm actually in the same boat as you are because while I love the classic games and everything, uh, once the Nintendo 64 came out, it became too complicated for me. <laughs> the, the controller was so elaborate and there were so many buttons and things to do that it was just like, I almost need three hands just to work this yeah. thing. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. So, um... We covered it a little bit, but uh, what 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 makes Phoenix Four different from the the editions that preceded it? Okay, it goes up to like you said, twenty sixteen, where the previous book only went to two thousand and one. It uh, has a lot of information I found out about since two thousand and one, like some of the early stuff, early uh, arcade stuff. A lot of early, I mentioned, I think, every single console that has come out, which the, early, the other books didn't mention. I have a, like I said, I have a complete Japanese history in there. A lot of Europe is covered in there. Uh, over a thousand photos. And then, of course, the deluxe versions in, in color, full color. Uh, it's, uh, I have a lot of footnotes in there, or should I, I should, might as well call them endnotes, because they're all in the back of the book. But the purpose of the endnotes was... I wanted the book to read like a novel where you don't want to skip ahead. So in the case of the end, it was like, if I know something, if I want to say something about a game that's going to happen in the, come out in the future to compare it, I didn't want it to be in the text of say the year 1983. If, if it's going to talk about something coming out in 1994. So that was original, the purpose of the end note. So uh, you don't, if you're reading about chapter, you're not going to leave that chapter and jump around to different errors. Right. What sources did you use to put the book together? I, I know you took the photos by collecting your own consoles, but uh, what else did you use to, to compile all that information? It's, that's, you know, I can't even say. It's anything I could find. Again, I have all, every magazine that's come out since 1981. Uh, of course, the internet, talking to people. And the internet, I, I just didn't go to the internet and say, oh, yeah, this says something. I went to like three or four sources to make sure that it all jived. Where Because you could go to one place that says one thing, go somewhere else, it says something else. And the mistake I made in the first three books, the th first three editions was with the uh, Fairchild video, uh, video Entertainment System, Channel F. And I said that they changed the name from the Video Entertainment System to the Channel F because... Atari came out with the VCS, so they didn't want it to be mixed up. And that wasn't true. I just made that up in the first edition. And the funny thing is, when I started to write the fourth edition, which incidentally took 10 years to write, 
I couldn't find anything that contradicted what I said. And the problem was that were the sources I was going to getting their information from me, or was that really the case? Finally, we went to write to Jerry Lawson and asked him, and that was he told us it was a marketing decision, which really doesn't give you an answer, but right. <laughs> but that's all I had to go with. Right. Yeah, well, it seems plausible anyway that marketing might have decided that you know they didn't want it to get confused with the VCS. So yeah, okay. So uh, you know, spending all this time, you've compiled all this history. Why do you feel like it's important for us to look back on video game history? Well, it's like any other art. You look back on on the art, see where you came from to go, you know, so you know where you're going. Anyone who has a degree in music knows the history of music or a degree in, in paintings. They look at art history. Uh, I just think it's important. Plus, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's one of those things that I know a lot of people think that I'm strange because I, I've really uh, gotten interested in this. And I think a lot of people nowadays, they don't care. You know, they just pick up the game that they have and they just play it. It's like, well, you know, what? <laughs> you know, what, what does it matter, you know, where it came from? Well, the funny, the funny thing about that is, I don't know, because so many people claim to be historians these days, too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. And a lot of people quote the same wrong facts over and over again. I just watched a documentary the other day, and uh, oh man, now I'm trying to remember what it was, but there was something that they had on. It was about the it's about the Atari VCS. It was one of those things that. It was one of those things that, that, you know, has been kind of contradicted over the years. And, and, you know, I was like, that's kind of strange that they would, a modern documentary would, I think it was talking about the fact that it was Nolan Bushnell who kicked his daughter out of the room when, you know, it's come wow. for that Ted Dabney's the one that that actually you know, happened. I'm the one who, who said that first. I, I'm the first one to interview Ted Dabney. Oh, okay. Uh, not 2008, I believe, uh, I wrote an article about him for Edge magazine, and it was the first time in 30 years that he finally told his side of the story. And it was in that article, that interview, that he told me that it was his daughter who got kicked out of the room. And the funny thing was, after that got published, I saw another interview with uh, Bushnell, and Bushnell says, well, both of our daughters got kicked out of the room. <laughs> well... I guess <laughs> I guess that's possible. <laughs> I, mean, I was considering, uh, you know, trying to get if I should get Bushnell's side of the story for Dabney's article. But then I said, you know, he had 30 years to tell his side. Let Ted tell his side for once. Yeah. And now me and Ted are good friends now. <laughs> I never met him personally, but but we're we're good friends. Oh. Now did I did I see that he was having a, a health issue? Uh, yeah, no. he has he has uh, esophagus cancer. But his spirits, I talked to him last week, his spirits are high. He says, you know, he told me he's lived a great life. He has no regrets. And then he said he, he uh, something happened when he was a kid. He should have died when he was four. So he said, this is all borrowed time. And tomorrow, I believe, yeah, tomorrow the Smithsonian is interviewing him. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's great that he's, you know, in the last, I don't know, decade or so made himself available talking about his time, because that's that's something where, where I think for many years only uh, Nolan Bushnell's story has been available. So it was good to have the, the more information about the early days of Atari. I mean, I'm glad. I mean, the same thing with Ralph Baer when I did an article about him for Electronic Game Monthly in 2000. Most people hadn't heard of him at that time. I mean, he had his time and he, in the 70s and the early 80s, and people forgot about him by the time my article came out. And what that article did was it, helped, it introduced a whole new generation of gamers and game executives to him. And he said after that article came out, 
his life changed because then he started getting invited to conferences. And he, I don't want to sound big headed, but he told me that he, he said the, that article is responsible for him getting the presidential award eventually. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And and I, nice. <laughs> it's almost like you anticipated my next question because I wanted to ask you about how you met Ralph Bear. So it, it was, was it for that article that you were talking no, about? No, actually, I, I met Ralph in 1983 at CES. Now, for me to get into CES the first time, I, I was working for an electronics store. So I went as a, I paid my way and I went as a, a retailer. And I told the guy in the, in the press room that I need to go to, because I, I asked different booths. I wanted press kits and they say I'm a retailer. They wouldn't give it to me. They say, well, they're in the press room. So I told uh, the guy in the press room, I said, here's my predicament. I need the press kits. I can only get here as a retailer. I'm writing a book. So the guy let me sneak into the press room for 10 minutes. He said, don't get in anyone's way. And uh, so I did that. And then I said, well, what do I do, what do, I do for now, for next year? He, so he put, I've been, I was getting press passes ever since then. But anyway, so here I'm a 23-year-old kid with a retailer badge. And I saw Ralph Bear and I recognized him. And I said, I went up to him, I said, you're Ralph Bear. And he goes, yeah, so? Hmm. And I like, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I just walked away. Right. And I'm thinking, this guy, what is he, rude? I mean, <laughs> and then when Phoenix came out, the first edition of Phoenix came out, I got a, a letter from him asking, how can he get the book? So I said, well, this is Ralph Bear. I'll send him the book. So I sent him the book, never heard from him. So I said, what is with this guy? <laughs> then when the second edition came out, I just automatically sent him a book. Didn't hear from him. But then finally, what happened with the second edition was it came out in the winter. I mailed it to his house in New Hampshire. He was at his, his uh, winter house in, uh, in Delray, Florida. So he didn't get that book till he came home in the spring. And at that time, he invited me up to his house. So I didn't want to go alone. So in nine, summer 1998, I asked John Hardy, who now runs the uh, National Video Game Museum, Kate Aida, who, with John Hardy, started uh, NAVA. I don't know if you know what NAVA is. No, I don't. It's a video game. They meet at the Digital Press Store. In, uh, well, now they meet at the Digital Press Store in Clifton. Uh, it's a group called NAVA, North American Video Aficionados. And it's been around, I guess, uh, about 23 years now. And from, from NAVA, that's what sprung into Classic Gaming Expo. And then the fourth person who went was uh, Mike Adler, who owned the store that we had our NAVA meetings at the time. Anyway, so the four of us, we drove up in my brand new Odyssey. <laughs> which I thought Ironic. Was apropos. Yeah. But, uh, but after that, me and Ralph, we just, we just connected after that. And uh, he always had me coming up after that. Not the other three, but just me. And it became like I called him my surrogate. Actually, his, his wife called me her surrogate son. And I just started calling him my surrogate father. If I had a problem, because my father was dead, my father-in-law was dead by then. And so if I had a problem, I would talk to Ralph about it. And then when, when he passed away, he passed away two weeks after my mother passed away. It was really tough. I lost two people very close to me in two weeks' time. I still miss him. If you don't mind talking a little bit more about him, I mean, what can you tell me about him as a friend? Because I know you, you talked about your early interactions with him where you felt like he might be a little abrupt. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what can you tell me about Ralph as a person? Because he's someone I would have liked to have met, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and so, yeah, it's, I would like to hear about him. Every time I was with him, I was in awe of him. And I, I and again, I, I've stayed at this house so many times, but every single time I was in awe with him. And whenever I'd visit, 
okay, he had his lab in the basement, which was really cool. And I would just sit there down in the basement with him. I know nothing about electronics, and I frustrated him because he tried teaching me electronics, but I couldn't <laughs> catch on. But uh, he also had an office upstairs, and I'd sit with him. He'd play with stuff. Play, and i just watch what he's doing. I know Tommy Tallarico's uh, show, uh, Video Games Live, uh, every once in a while, he would Skype Ralph from the stage. And at one time, I was sitting behind Ralph while <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're chatting. And I just, he was, to me, I don't know. Again, again, he was a normal person. He had a wry sense of humor. What frustrated him in the end was because uh, his mind was still sharp and his body wasn't. And he was uh, sleeping a lot of times. And that just frustrated him. But he was still coming up with new ideas. It, it was so cool. <laughs> Yeah, I've read his book, uh, Video Games in the Beginning, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's amazing how meticulous he was in uh, note-keeping and all the records that he kept, detailed schematics and things like that. Well, that's that's his German heritage. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Have you ever talked about, you know, why he he kept such detailed notes? Because, I mean, that's unusual. I mean, I work as an engineer, and usually... Mm -hmm. You don't keep notes that detailed, you know, especially decades and then, you know, later. So now hey, we never talked about it, but I think that's why. I mean, we, we talked because we we're both Jewish. We talked about the Nazis and the Holocaust. And he was telling me how the Nazis kept uh, impeccable records of everything. And I, I just assume that's a German trait that he, you know, inherited somehow. Sure. So whose idea was it to do the book? It was his. He, he approached me, do I want to do it? And I said, sure. <laughs> right. It's clear in the book that he felt understandably bitter that, mm-hmm. you know, his own achievements had been kind of, a, you know, a Nolan Bushnell's story of the origin of video games had been, you know, what people knew and, and that his his was not so well known. Did, did he ever, you know, because he did get the, the presidential or the National Medal of Technology, did he ever feel later in life that through the work that you were doing and through internet websites reporting more about his work and whatnot that that the narrative had changed? Oh, that, yeah, definitely. I mean, after he got the presidential award, he stu- he like I said, he was going to a lot of uh, conferences and he phased that out after he got the presidential award because he said nothing can top that. But he also said he goes, uh, our friend Nolan never got one of these. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one thing I want to say is, and this this isn't known, is after he got the award, somebody, and I, I don't remember who, somebody from uh, an early Atari engineer uh, wrote, there was an article about Ralph in the uh, IEEE journal about, you know, getting the award and stuff. And somebody, I don't remember the exact details, but somebody said that Nolan was bitter about this and... Uh, and and then uh, Ralph stole Simon from Nolan, which uh. Ralph always said he got the idea from uh, Touch Me. But anyway, so I think, well, let me backtrack. For CES, one year, I think it was around 2003 or 2002, both Nolan and Ralph were supposed to come. And they were supposed to have a game of Pong against each other. And Ralph was really excited about that. And I saw Nolan in New York. And I told him, I said, Ralph's really excited about playing, you know, seeing you in Las Vegas and playing Pong against you. And Nolan said, oh, yeah, I'm excited about that, too. And then Nolan never showed up. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, so years later, it wasn't that long because he got the award in 2006. Nolan sent Ralph an email. And I have a copy somewhere. I just can't find it. But Nolan accused Ralph of stealing his lab notes 
his lab book, whatever, a lab book that nobody has ever seen. No one has ever heard of it, but he accused Ralph of stealing it. So I guess in, he's accusing Ralph of taking his ideas. And I know Ralph responded to him in an email and then Nolan never responded again. And I said to Ralph, I said, do you want me to make this letter, this email public? And he says, no, just leave it as it is. Oh, it's it's funny sometimes how dramatic things get when people start talking about the the story of the video games because yeah, it's quite a story. And I have I have the utmost respect for for Nolan. I have to say that, but uh, the problem with Nolan, he'll say to you something to your face like he's your best friend, and then as soon as your back's turned, he'll say something else. I met his son Tyler last year. Actually, I, I drove his son to the, to the airport. Really nice guy, and we talked about that. And he goes, "Oh yeah, my my father forgets things." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and no one can deny that Nolan is a uh, very smart and savvy businessman because of what he's been able to do with his life and uh, well, how he's. Ted, Ted denies it, <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so. Um, Ralph, uh, you know, he, he's known uh, now, at least for the Odyssey. He's known for Simon. Were there any other things that he developed that you feel like he would like to be known for? Well, in the back of the book, he has a whole chapter of all the stuff he came out with. And my last visit with him, the uh, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but there's there are two things I, want, I do want to talk about. But my last visit to him, the Smithsonian started to take his lab out already. And he said to me, he goes, because he had all the stuff he did, he had in uh, high quality photos on his computer. And the way the Smithsonian is supposed to be set up, they have a monitor showing the ball going back and forth with the paddles. And he asked me if I could do a video of, you know, it starts with the, the ball and paddle game, but then, then it'll switch to here's other things that Ralph Bear wasn't just video tennis. And then he wanted me to do a video about all his other stuff. And for some reason, I did not take his file home with me, which had all those high-quality pictures. And it got lost somewhere, so it was never done. I mean, I told the son about his idea. I told the people at uh, the Smithsonian about the idea, but nobody seemed to be interested either in it. So I'm sorry that that never happened, because that would have been cool. One problem he had was, like I said, he's inventing new stuff. He had a problem going to toy companies where the executives were like 25 years old and did not know who he was. And they just treated him as an old man. And he hated that. But he came up with this idea of talking tools. And he showed me the prototype. And one of them was like a, a tape measure. And you pull a tape measure out and it'll talk to you and say, it was geared for kids, but they were working tools. And you pull it out and it'll say how many feet and inches you're pulling it out and, and some other stuff. Well, Hasbro bought it from him, the idea. And they came out with what they came out were these stupid toy tools that said, hello, I'm a toolbox or hello, I'm a screwdriver. Nothing of value. And he hated that. And I, I know before he died, he wanted to get them back from Hasbro. I don't know if he succeeded in that. Another thing he had, oh, this was so cool. He, he built a GPS for kids. And what he did was uh, M Michael Thomason made a map for him, which is like a little city with streets. And on the map were buildings like a post office and a school and a gas station and a store. And you put a car. I don't remember how big the car was, bigger than a matchbox. but And you tell the car, go to the post office. And then you have to move it by hand, but you move the car down the street. And then the car will say, 
make a right here or make a left here until it gets you to the post office. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And when he tried to market it, the toy companies are telling him, well, there's no story involved. There's no storyline, which is so stupid. And he finally got a Japanese company was interested in it. And then that Japanese company got uh, destroyed when they had the the tsunami. Mm. So it died with it. Oh, that is awful. Yeah, you think about that. That's such a ridiculous statement, though, because uh, how many toys that you had as a kid had a story with it? Right. <laughs> Especially toy cars. You're pushing the car. Right. So those are the problems he had, you know, in older age, is coming up with these great ideas but not being able to market it because toy companies don't have vision anymore. They want to go with stuff that's safe, and that's it. Well, I still think it's amazing that he came up with the idea of just uh, – you know, making the, the the things on the TV do something, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the test patterns that he used to play with when he was a TV engineer, you know, I mean, that's, that's a kind of an out there idea that uh, it's great that he did because it's created a whole industry. I mean, I don't want to take away from Ted and Nolan what they did because they did it concurrently as Ralph and Ralph got to it first. That's all it was. I mean, if Ralph wasn't there, they would have, they would have got it. But to say, but to the victor goes the spoils. He got there first. Right. No, it's true. But the problem was he was a true engineer. He didn't care about fame. Atari was his customer. So if Nolan wanted to say he invented video games, Ralph wasn't going to argue. Right. Well, it was interesting because I, I believe in his book. I I, I read it I, uh, just a year ago that he, he said that even like the legal people at uh, Sanders were telling him not to say anything about it because they were, you know, a licensee. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just let sleeping dogs lie kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, it's unfortunate that because of that, he, you know, kind of history kind of glossed him over for a while there. Is there anything else that you would like to say about Ralph? Like I said before, I I miss him terribly every single day of the year. Uh, His son told me they're building a statue uh, of him in Manchester, New Hampshire. Oh, nice. I think sitting on a park bench. I have to check that email again. I still keep in touch with his kids, which is like I'm part of the family. It's nice. (laughs) And also, he gave me the uh, brown box replica. I don't know if you're aware of the replicas. Yes, I do. I, I know that he made uh, for um, at least some for the the Smithsonian, well, but yeah, Smithsonian got the real one. And because Ralph wanted other museums around the world to have a have a brown box on display, he made about I don't know twenty four, twenty five replicas, and he gave me the very first of those replicas. Oh, nice. I don't, I don't use it any. I mean, I take it to shows, but I don't turn it on anymore because in 2012, I went to a PAX, the first PAX East and I had it on display and it stopped working and nobody at the show could figure out why it wasn't working. I mean, they had, I was with, I was with Funspot. I don't know if you know what Funspot, Funspot is. Uh, no, I don't. They call, they're in New Hampshire. They call themselves the world's largest arcade. Oh, okay. So they had a room at PAX East, and I was in with them. And they had somebody who fixed their machines every time the machine, you know, machine broke. And she came over. She had no idea what to do with the brown box. So after the show, I drove to his house, which is only an hour away, and he fixed it in 15 minutes. I mean, I have a wonderful picture I took. And I don't know if you're familiar. Game Informer asked me to write a tribute for him when he died. And I used that picture for the tribute. And it's just looking over his shoulder, him whistling as he's fixing it with a big smile on his face. And he fixed it in 15 minutes. And I can't depend on him to fix it anymore. So I just don't don't use it anymore. 
Yeah, that transistor technology, that's not really what people no, do. The, 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 the replicas are all, all computer chips. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not like the original one, which is all discrete uh, components. Mm. Oh, okay. I thought he rebuilt it like with no, the original no, specs. No. Okay. Somebody programmed it for him. He built the box and stuff, and he just put the chip in the in, in – it's hollow, except for the one chip in there. Oh, okay. And if you do go to the Smithsonian today, from my understanding – a replica will be on display there too because they had concerns about the fluorescent light damaging the original one so the original one's in the back room now yeah well that makes that makes sense um that is that is an item of great historical importance so you want to keep it preserved well when the smithsonian got it when he gave it to them they needed to figure out how much it was worth for insurance purposes and nobody could figure out a, a value for it so finally the uh the museum, the computer museum in uh, San Jose, somebody with them gave it a, a blanket estimate of $2 million, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. So um, are you going to bring the brown box to uh, the Midwest Gaming Classic? I'll bring it, but I said I won't turn it on. <laughs> sure, sure. No, but it would still be neat to see because, well, I've seen photos, you know, it's, you know, it's different when you can actually see it in person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that'll be cool. I'm going Michael Thomason. He has one also, but I think I'll bring in mine. Okay. So looking at the entire history of video games, which you've spent many years of your life chronicling, <laughs> what would you say are the most important developments? <laughs> you put me on the spot oh, here. Sure. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I kind of think about that one. Uh, well, the key developments, of course, is when it is the Odyssey, of course. Uh, the first cartridge. So we're talking about the uh, Channel F. I mean, the BCS historically is only historically historically important because it was the first best-selling console. Right. But there was really not. I don't think there was really anything really uh, groundbreaking about it. Well, it was the most successful console in the sense of how long it it lasted. Well, we didn't know that when it it came out. Right. Right. I mean, you talk about hindsight. I mean, it, it lasted till 1991, but who knew that? And television. Well, television was like uh, a hybrid 16-bit machine. Uh, then you go into CD drives. That was important. Xbox, I don't find such <laughs> so groundbreaking. <laughs> I mean, the PS2, the, t- the best-selling console of all time, will also have the DVD function, which helps sell it. And I, I know I'm missing a lot. The Game Boy, to me, that was groundbreaking, even though it wasn't the first handheld, but... That's that's like one of my favorite consoles. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and it certainly made handhelds. You know, because the handhelds before that were just like a one game kind of thing. They weren't really that. You know, but Game Boy, you know, was was portable and it let you have a programmable console. You know, it was with so you. Portable. So. Me and my wife took it on our honeymoon. <laughs> oh great, <laughs> yeah. But um, all right. So, um, do you think that the age of consoles is over? I think big consoles are over. I mean, look, I think stuff like the Switch is now taking over. I mean, that's the best-selling console in the time period, the time frame it's been out. And I think that's what people want now, something that it's a hand, you know, portable and a console. Uh, again, that's off the top of my head. Sure. I don't know how well, right now, I don't know how well uh, the Xbox One, was it the X? I keep getting that mixed up. There's the Xbox One S and the Xbox One X. <laughs> I don't know how that, and then the, the, was it the PS4 Pro? I don't know how they're doing right now. Yeah. 
do you, what is your favorite console? Oh, the uh, twenty six hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I have so many fond memories of playing that because that was my first. Um, mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. as as a child, yeah, uh, first. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't remember a time before our family had it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up with it, and so even though I loved Nintendo, the, the original Nintendo, uh, also um, because I still got that fairly young in my life, the the twenty six hundred was the last time the whole family sat around and played oh, okay. the video games. That was in my twenties when I got it. So uh, I I guess. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. I never got an NES until years and years later. I refused to to get one. I was never a fan of Nintendo, especially way they uh, try to monopolize the industry. So uh, I did get a Sega Master System though, because uh, I collect Monopoly sets, or I used to collect Monopoly sets. So I got say Sega Master System for Monopoly, which uh. I think came before the NES Monopoly. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's cool. In television too. I got in television too because Activision had me on their press list, so they sent me in television games. So I had to get in television too to play on it, play it on. Yeah, no, it was just it, it, the, the, there was something about that VCS that it was simple enough that anyone could just pick it up because that's what my parents said when we got an NES was that it was just too complicated for them. They didn't really? want to play it with us anymore. But the VCS, the whole family would sit around and you know when you have two pong control, you know you could have four players with the two mm-hmm. pong sets, and so there are games like Warlords and stuff that the whole family could sit down and play. So you know it was just like fun. It was a fun thing. So I totally get the. Uh, the love of the VCS. And I'll never forget when Activision first came out with their games. I'm thinking, wow, look at these graphics. These yeah. are astounding. <laughs> I remember playing skiing when I first got it, and my aunt walked in the room. I said, look at these graphics. And she has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. She doesn't know what a video game is. But I thought those graphics were so realistic. And now when I watch my son play uh, NHL 18, I said, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. They won't even look at the VCS. Yeah. I get annoyed sometimes when I read reviews and, and, you know, people writing about early video games and saying things like Super Mario Brothers was the first platforming game. And I'm like, I'll, uh, I know I played Pitfall, which comes before Super Mario Brothers. There are probably some before that. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, yeah, sometimes, yeah, it, it just gets annoying when people don't know anything about, you know, what they're talking about. I always say, read my book. <laughs> right. So um, you mentioned adventure, but are there any other games that stick out in your mind as just games that you really enjoyed playing? Unfortunately, with time, I just can't remember what, the, what was there. And I wrote a book. My book, ABC the VCS, did come out in, 2000, in 1995, then 2005. And I'll, I'll scroll through it, and, and there's games on there I don't even remember. Oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Did you uh, so so there was an edition in 2005 you said? Yeah. First one came out in 1995. That was uh photocopied and stapled over, had a blue cover. Print was microscopic. I should have gave a magnifying glass with every book I sold. <laughs> but in 2005 I uh it was a real book with uh screenshots of every single game. Did that include because by 2005 there were probably homebrews on the oh, market. Oh yeah, whatever homebrew was was out by then, I included. Oh, that's, that's when really I was able neat. to keep up with the homebrews. Of course, yeah. And now, I mean, I would love to put a new edition out, but there's just so much stuff out there. I, ha- I don't have a clue. I can't keep up with it. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is trying to create comprehensive lists of some of these systems. And it's really difficult when you start looking at homebrews that have, you know, were released as a cartridge. 
you know, because I, I consider ones that are just developed as a ROM and never get a cartridge as kind of a yeah. separate thing. You know, that's that, yeah, that's not legitimate. But to me, if it's got a cartridge release, that's a legitimate. Uh, well, probably even more are they make they make limited edition homebrews fifty at a time, and that makes the price go up on them. Mm-hmm. There's one that just came out, the New Marauder, which I don't collect hacks. I just want homebrews. Right. This game is not like a hybrid between a hack and a homebrew. Where they took the original Marauder, they changed some programs, they added new new levels and stuff, and it looked cool. It came in a, a legitimate box and full color instruction manual. So I wrote to them because I was interested in getting it, and the guy came. It's from Brazil. It's it's an NTSC game, but it's from Brazil. He wants fifty nine dollars for it. Okay. But then he want, then he said postage is thirty nine dollars. <laughs> I can't see paying ninety dollars for a, a twenty six hundred game. He made fifty of them. Yeah, that's where I really like what Atari Age does. Just makes it like a normal store where you can just buy and they make them as they're ordered or whatever. And I saw them. I saw Albert in Portland. It's the first time we we've talked in years, and I said I'm so behind. One day I just got to go to the store and just start getting. <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. But the 2600 is still my biggest collection. I think I have about 800 cartridges for it. Oh, wow. So do you even have like uh, the same gamers released under different names and some of those kinds of cartridges? See, only the Sears stuff. Okay. And then the ones that uh, oh my, Panda came out with games that originally came out under different names. So those I collected. But I don't collect uh, color variations and, and boxes. I threw all my boxes out in 1983, so I'm not about to start collecting boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see people talking about their complete in-box sets, and I'm like, you know. That's yeah, I don't the- care. <laughs> right. <laughs> I still have all my manuals. That, that's enough for me. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So uh, are you planning on continuing Phoenix with a Phoenix 5 someday? <laughs> yeah i was thinking today i gotta start working on the 26 2017 chapter i forgot we're in 2018 already because i was looking at the nintendo uh, lab was it labo the thing that comes out next month the cardboard and i was thinking, oh yeah i gotta start making notes about this that's coming out i think that's pretty cool i can't wait for it <laughs> but yeah i'd like to continue it starting a new book which i can't go into details now which i'm hoping will come out in a year or so uh, i'm excited about that I'm starting to do research on it. It's quite different from, from Phoenix altogether. I mean, it's video game related. So hopefully I'll be able to say something about that soon. And also I'm thinking of republishing uh, Bill Kunkel's book. I was hoping to have it ready by uh, Midwest Gaming, but that that's not going to happen now. And I, I'm sorry, which one was uh, Bill Kunkel's book? Confessions of the Game Doctor. Okay. Yes, I remember seeing that listed in the back of one of your books. Yeah, I said that came out the same year as uh, Ralph's book. And what was cool was uh, there was a show in Philadelphia called Video Game Expo. And the first year they had it, both Ralph and Bill came to it. So that was the best <laughs> the best turnout I ever had at one of my booths. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Leonard, thank you for uh, being on the, uh, the 42 cast today. Well, thanks for having me. All right. No problem. And that's it for our interview with Leonard Herman. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. I hope that some of you out there are interested in video game history. And if so, you should check out his book. His most recent book is Phoenix 4. Uh, and as he mentioned, he does contribute to various gaming magazines and other things. And that he does own a publishing company called Rolenta Press, in which he has published books by Ralph Baer, such as Video Games in the Beginning, uh, as well as other books. So you can check out Rolenta Press. You can check out Phoenix 4. Uh, 
Uh, you can look for his articles in various gaming magazines. So uh, yeah, check him out. And of course, I'd like to hear from you about how you enjoyed the show. What did you like? What didn't you like? What kind of guests do you like us to have on the show? What kind of interviews do you like us to do? What kind of topics do you want us to talk about? And there are a lot of ways that you can let me know what those are. One of those is by emailing us at everything at 42cast.com. Another way is to go to our Facebook group, which is at facebook.com slash 42cast and leaving a message there. You can tweet to us at at 42cast. You can go to the website at 42cast.com and leave some feedback there. You can also leave feedback at Stitcher Radio and iTunes. One other thing that I should mention is that the ESO Network now has a Patreon, so you can go check that out. There are exclusive podcasts for all the different shows on the network up there. I will be contributing 42K. I shouldn't say that they're up there. They will be up there. Uh, Some are already up there, and I will be contributing an episode eventually. Um, I'm having a hard enough time keeping up with the uh, regular schedule, but as soon as I'm able to, I will have an episode up there as well. I have a panel from Chicago TARDIS that I think would be great as exclusive content on the Patreon, so you can look at that. Um, uh, Never will any of my normal topics be on the patreon as an exclusive uh episode there'll only be panels from cons um but the several times i've recorded some and with the my release schedule there's just no way that it's going to go in the regular show so i think that that's kind of a good place to put those topics from for those panels from the cons is, is on the patreon so join us back next week when dan stevens will not be joining us and until then this is nathan signing off You've been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2018. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is sharper swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. Incidental music is provided with permission by fur DK. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.